but I think there's been this fear that exercise is somehow going to be dangerous. Uh, and it's quite the contrary. After that first day, when they say you have cancer, there's a new person born. You know, there's this thing called new normal. I, th I think they don't really maybe understand how much it's going to help them. Each patient and each survivor is going to be experiencing different side effects, different experiences. The positive is that it's, it's never too late. Welcome to the REACH podcast, where you'll hear from researchers, doctors and patients themselves on how exercise, nutrition and lifestyle behaviors can reduce cancer risk and improve survivorship. I'm your host, Kieran Fairman. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode 3 of the REACH podcast. In today's show, I'm chatting to Dr. Bobby Chima, who's a researcher and senior lecturer at the University of Western Sydney in Australia. Bobby's done a ton of work in the area of weight training and cancer. So the, for the first half of the talk, we mainly focus on why it's so important for cancer survivors and patients to engage in weight training and help to design a program that will fit into your overall lifestyle. The second part of the show focuses on the role of an exercise physiologist within the healthcare system. In Australia, patients with chronic diseases can get reimbursed through various insurance parties for training sessions. So I think it's a really fascinating insight into that world and it may give us an idea of where our field is going and how other countries might look to, to replicate or emulate that. And then we finish up the show by just giving a couple of quick practical tips for both professionals and survivors who are looking to design an exercise program about how to go about doing that. So make sure you stay tuned towards the end of the show for that. You can find Dr. Bobby Chima at his website, which is aptly named drbobbychima.com. And you can catch me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Kieran Fairman, which of course I'll put in the description box because no one will be able to spell that. And be sure to check out our new, new and improved website, reachbeyondcancer.com, where you can also follow me on various social media sites from there too. So thanks for tuning in again. Enjoy the episode. And here's Bobby. Before we get started, I have to ask, so uh, myself and Bobby have been going back and forth about this, this Skype interview and he sent me his, his promotional videos. Uh, Bobby does a lot of consultations in the area in, in Sydney and and redesigned his website, looks great. And he sent me this promo video and the first 15 seconds is someone surfing. Is that you? Yeah, that's actually me. That's I you? Was, yeah. Um, so I wanted to get across the theme of lifestyle and how it, you know, how the training is basically enhancing, you know, it's supposed to enhance somebody's life. Um, so that's the theme I was kind of coming across with. Yeah. I think you you more nailed uh, some sort of intimidation because I looked at that and I said, man, I'm never going to be on his level. Right. <laughs> so you've started surfing already. You know what? I, I actually at ACSM a couple of years ago, I did uh, did one of those beginner sessions in San Diego. And, uh, you know, she just oh. told me um, <laughs> it wasn't for me to, to look at different sports. So I've kind of left that behind. Yeah, but you come from an Irish background. Do I have that right? I do. Yeah. 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 So Ireland has some great waves. You'll be... You'll be happy to know. So, uh, <laughs> Learn how to swim is the first step, and then we'll get onto the surfing as we as we move go. forward. Brilliant. So let's um, let's dive on in. So the the focus of today is is two parts. Uh, firstly, I think you you've done an incredible job in the field so far, really promoting the the safety and efficacy of resistance training in cancer populations. So we'll touch on that a little bit, and then we'll kind of move on to um, this really novel concept, at least to to folks in the US, and that. Uh, exercise physiologists in Australia are actually funded through uh, various, you know, Medicare, Medicaid systems. So I'd like to kind of finish on that. But 
let's go ahead and get started and, and kind of touch on, the, you know, a brilliant review we had out a couple of years ago, kind of touching on the safety and e- efficacy of resistance training in breast cancer. And first of all, if we, if we kind of backtrack, why, why is resistance training important for this population? Well, I think it's a massive benefit to any population, really. Um, and it seems to be the, the ingredient that's missing uh, from a lot of people's exercise regimens. Um, so even people who are active, for example, they're, they're missing that critical ingredient. And why is it so important in um, not only breast cancer but chronic disease in general? Um, as we grow older, of course, the loss of uh, muscle mass is a, a common feature. And uh, I would suggest that that starts to occur at about the age of 25 unless somebody's particularly active. Um, and with that loss of muscle mass comes a change in, in the metabolic profile. And essentially, once the metabolism changes, people tend to put on fat. And this is a common occurrence. We know this from from looking at people when they age, um, particularly in westernized societies. So with the accrual of fat, now we have uh, fat mass becoming one of the leading risk factors for uh, breast cancer and a range of other cancers. So um, the importance of resistance training from a metabolic standpoint is particularly important for breast cancer survivors. Um, but also from a functional standpoint, we know that breast cancer treatments um, reduce the functioning of the upper body in particular. Um, so to improve the functional capabilities of the upper body is is very important. That's a, that's a huge benefit of resistance training. Uh, and also the psychological benefits. So uh, improvements in quality of life, improvements in fatigue, improvements in um, depression, uh, things like that have been noted across many studies uh, across 35 years of research. Yeah, that's brilliant. And can you touch on why why upper body strength is so important in this population? You know, particularly as a result of various treatments and how how training can kind of attenuate that, as you said. Yeah, well, my my journey. It's funny you mention that because my journey actually started back at UBC uh, back in nineteen. I was just graduating from my my bachelor's degree uh, back in nineteen ninety eight, and one of my professors there was actually uh, Professor Donald McKenzie, who started the whole dragon move uh, dragon boat movement. Okay, so this is what basically influenced my journey uh, was was his knowledge and and what he was actually taking on in terms of um, uh, essentially trying to counteract uh, this idea that uh, upper body exertion was somehow uh, contraindicated for this population and it was somehow going to exacerbate this condition called lymphedema. Um, so he started with a group of women in Vancouver and started paddling dragon boats. Uh, and basically demonstrated that uh, upper body exertion does not result in detrimental changes like lymphedema uh, and only positive changes, really. So uh, with respect to your question, I think, you know, functional impairment uh, of the upper body uh, is a consequence of, um, you know, the surgeries, the radiation treatment that women commonly uh, receive as a consequence of the breast cancer and certainly from the data that we've gathered over the last, as I said, three decades, um, it's quite clear that strength training has a, has a profound effect on upper body function. Yeah, that's brilliant. And, and I think, you know, some of the work of, of the likes of Melinda Irwin and Katie Schmitz as well, really pushing the boundaries of resistance training in this population, where, as you mentioned, um, there was such a fear of doing it for for so many years and, and the fact that now we've kind of established as you said the safety and efficacy is just phenomenal and it, and it's a testament to the the research that's come before us to get us to this point oh absolutely yeah so we we like i say we have tons of, of data now that was um in breast cancer specifically i sent uh, myself and a group of author, authors we 
synthesized that information in 2014, um, showing that the risk of lymphedema was actually lower in those who engaged in resistance training. Yeah, that's excellent. I think it's it's something that would certainly be of surprise for a lot of people who are getting these traditional recommendations of, again, you know, not lifting a gallon of milk over your head or, you know, avoiding upper body exercise for however many months after treatment. And we're, we're starting to find that it's just not the case. And similar to, you know, you have a heart attack, you want to stress the heart as quick as possible. Um, really, the, the more active you are as soon as you can after treatment, you know, the better your outcomes are going to be. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think just to take the cardiac example, I mean, it wasn't that long ago that people were prescribed bed rest uh, for weeks on end after a you know heart surgery. So um, it, we've kind of come from the same kind of perspective. I think there's been this um, fear amongst uh, the medical establishment, maybe amongst patients, um, that exercise is somehow going to be dangerous. Uh, and it's quite the contrary. You know, I mean, we sh- I think we should investigate the danger of of sitting down for 10 hours a day or, you know, <laughs> engaging in activity rather than uh, the reverse. So, um, yeah, it's it's great to see those um, taboos being overturned. And, um, you know, it's taken us a while to get there, but I think we're starting to make some um, some headway now. Yeah, I think and one, one of the things that excites me the most about being in this field right now is that we're seeing this change happening in front of our eyes. You know, when I back in my masters when I was kind of going through this my mentor <laughs> dating himself was was old enough to to witness that transition in cardiac rehab from bed rest to full-on cardiac rehabilitation protocols and I think it's so exciting now to be at a point in exercise oncology where we are starting to see those changes and it's not a case of if anymore it's a case of when and to be to be in the field when that's happening it's just a really exciting time to be a part of it. Oh, I couldn't agree more. I think, you know, we're knocking at the door. And um, from my perspective, the uh, the interest among oncologists uh, that I've seen in the last three or four years has been unprecedented. They're really switched on to it. They're really coming around and saying, how do we get this in- integrated into our cancer clinics? How do we get this to benefit our patients? So it's a good time, like you say. So let's um, let's go back. You kind of touched on, on the review you had really synthesizing as, as we talked about the safety and efficacy of of resistance training. Can you talk a little bit more about that review itself, um, you know, kind of how you did it and what you found? Yeah, so basically the review, I mean, we, uh, we looked at randomized control trials that prescribe resistance training uh, in the breast cancer population specifically. And um, those studies, I believe, dated back to about the early 2000s. Um, the most notable of those studies you've touched on is, is Katie Schmitz's work uh, over in the States there. Um, published a couple of randomized control trials, published in uh, JAMA and the New England Journal. Uh, essentially, we were looking at um, safety and e- efficacy. So pulling those um, facets together and uh, showing that it was safe. So essentially, lymphedema was one of the main outcomes. We showed uh, no greater risk, in fact, lower risk of lymphedema incidence or exacerbation in breast cancer resistance trained women as compared to controls who did not receive any training. Um, Similarly, we saw uh, significant increases in uh, strength. We saw significant increases in quality of life uh, in that population as well. So in terms of safety and efficacy, those were the main you know, outcomes that we were concerned with. We also investigated adverse events qualitatively and um, beyond the you know, common musculoskeletal complaints that might occur with a bit of resistance training, there was nothing serious reported across any of those uh, randomized control trials. Uh, there was 14 trials included in our review. Brilliant. And, and the main kind of takeaway is that you know, 
resistance training has progressed so much in our field that we, we, as you said, we do understand that it's largely safe in a breast cancer population, particularly in a survivorship population. You have a whole host of, of benefits, not just in terms of lymphedema functioning, but you've got body composition, you've got improved upper and lower body strength, overall physical function, along with stuff like quality of life and even, you know, body image, which is an important uh, concern in this population. Not to not to mention the, this idea that there was no real adverse events, events kind of mentioned, which um, I think that's a fascinating finding in itself that it, it really just kind of reverses or at least speaks to the dogma of what we, we used to have in, in that if you have lymphedema, you have to be really conservative in your exercise approach. And certainly you have to have this, you have to be mindful of it and, and certainly you need some sort of uh, professional guidance there, but, but that doesn't preclude you from safe exercise. No, absolutely not. In fact, uh, several of the studies, and I believe one of Katie Schmitz's um, papers, the inclusionary criteria was lymphedema to begin with. So they were actually training women who had the condition. Um, so that's a really good point. So, you know, we kind of, we had talked a bit in detail at last year's ACSM, and I think we're really on the same page with our our ideas on resistance training and uh, how to design and implement it in, in a breast cancer population or cancer as a whole. Can you talk to, um, you know, what your process is when you have a cancer patient or survivor come to you and say, hey, let's, let's design a resistance training program for me. Can you touch on maybe, you know, what are some pre-screening considerations you have, um, any cancer-specific considerations, and, and how would you go about designing that program relative to our, our national norms? Yeah. Um, well, as, as you mentioned off the top, you know, exercise physiologists have been integrated in the medical system down here um, since 2006. So I function within that uh, landscape, and the patients that I commonly see in terms of consultations um, I only see them a few times, maybe a year, and I'm essentially giving them homework. So a lot of this stuff is actually done on their own time. Um, in, in the best practice scenario, I believe the application of resistance training exercise in general should be a partial supervision model um, so that the patient is seeing you perhaps once, perhaps twice a week initially to begin with and then be given a whole lot of homework. Because as we know, exercise should be done daily, uh, particularly aerobic conditioning uh, whereas the resistance, resistance training you're doing on non-consecutive days, et cetera. Uh, as far as the consultation, the um, first thing I would do is, is cover the entire uh, medical history of the patient um, because, as we know, breast cancer is a condition that affects the elderly uh, more so. And um, so go through all that. Identify any contraindications that might be present, so any cardiac conditions, any metabolic uh, conditions that I need to be concerned about. Uh, the prescription is basically, you know, it's a take-home uh, prescription. Um, I've provided videos to my patients. Those are all available online. Um, I instruct them on, on appropriate lifting techniques in terms of uh, selection of exercises, in terms of um, the intensity ranges, why it's important to lift heavy, why it's important to live within the, within the 8 to 12 repetition maximum range. Um, and essentially what I give most people is, is twice a week, uh, resistance training session, uh, twice a week resistance training that they do at home. So this is home-based, uh, with a logbook. Um, they've got access to the videos. I help them identify somebody who's going to facilitate that. So whether that be a, a friend or a family member, uh, who can be involved in that. Um, but essentially a lot of the people that I work with, they don't want to set foot in a gym. 
Um, they're quite turned off by the gym environment in general. Um, so those are some of the barriers that I face in terms of implementation. You know, for people listening and you kind of talk about why it's important, can you, can you expand on why it is important to lift heavy versus in that, say, 8 to 12 range? Yeah, well, I think, you know, you touched that all in, on that really well in a couple of your recent uh, publications. Uh, overload is perhaps the most important principle when it comes to the application of resistance training. So if you're not lifting heavy, if you're not lifting challenging weights, uh, the body is not going to physio- physiologically change. It's not going to shift. Um, so lifting in the 8 to 12 repetition maximum range optimizes changes in muscular strength, muscular endurance, power. It also is the best repetition maximum range for eliciting changes in muscle mass uh, and therefore metabolism. So being able to train within that range uh, is, is very, very important. And it's a safe range to train in. Certainly you're not engaging in any kind of maximal lifting or anything like that that could put the patient at risk. To give the readers a little bit of insight, so the American College of Sports Medicine is is our uh, is our national governing body, and they recently Australia recently changed their name. What's what's the the name now of your equivalent, Bobby? Yeah, so it's called ESSA, Exercise and Sports Science Australia. Right, and they, they both kind of have similar guidelines in in their resistance training prescription for cancer patient survivors. Which a couple of things on that, you know, the first thing is is it's a testament to how much hard work has been done up until this point. And um, these research studies are not easy to do. There's a lot of recruitment issues and there's a lot of kind of uh, retainment of participants uh, issues there as well. And so just the fact that we have these guidelines is such a big testament to the work that's been done before us. And so essentially what we look at is um, these guidelines have kind of suggested, as Bobby mentioned, two to three days a week on non-consecutive days of one to three sets of anywhere from eight to 15 repetitions of a total body split. So usually anywhere from six to eight exercises per session where you're looking at um, three or four upper body, three or four lower body, or maybe some core work in there as well. Um, and myself and Bobby have kind of similar perspectives in that this these guidelines are a tremendous addition to the field, but it's also had this effect in that we, we kind of fall within this lane in that we only prescribe these guidelines. And of course, in evidence-based practice in any other field, we'll look at the research and we'll look at the evidence and we'll look to expand on them. And so I think, Bobby, the fact that you are are actively kind of promoting this idea of of lifting heavy and maybe what's beyond, you know, traditionally recommended, I think is just really, uh, it's, it's a great thing to see that's been done in, in practice. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really the time now. I think... Um this image of uh, weight training being for the bulked out steroid types has, that's a stigma. I mean, that's, this has to go. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's basically a myth. Um, anytime that I've applied resistance training in somebody who's in anyone really, um, they tend to lean out, they tend to get more toned. They don't tend to bulk up unless they're eating, you know, every two hours and they want to, uh, specifically bulk up. And if they're supplementing a heap, um, so resistance training is for everyone, and that's a real point that I want to stress. It's it's for everyone of every age, including children, uh, all the way up to the oldest old. So um, it's it's high time I think that uh, it was it, it's it's promoted more strongly than it has been. But for aging and chronic disease in particular, and to avoid and prevent those conditions, uh, resistance training, in my view, actually outranks um, the other modalities in terms of its power, in terms of its effectiveness. 
Yeah, I'd agree. I think we've gotten to the point now where we kind of appreciate this idea of cardiovascular health up until till a point. But ultimately, as you said, what kind of contributes the greatest to a lot of the functional decline we see is that loss of strength, loss of mobility, functional ability, all that stuff, all of yeah. which can be attenuated by appropriate resistance exercise. Um, and so I, I kind of want to touch on, it's really interesting that you kind of mentioned a lot of your, your clients or participants seem to favor home-based programs or at least programs that don't face set foot in the gym. Um, can you kind of give give us a picture of what a typical, you know, workout week would look like for someone who who you know isn't going into the gym? Yeah, so I'd probably give it on uh, two non consecutive days of the week, as I mentioned, um, a very robust program. So targeting all the major muscle groups, um, common exercises that typically prescribe would include like an incline push up. I know most people just deter and hate push ups, but uh, essentially, when you look at hu- human movement, it comes down to three movements, predominantly push, pull, and squat. So you've got to have those movements in there. Um, so pushing the push-ups is important. Um, for pulling, you know, the bent-over row would be a, a good home-based exercise. I try to minimize the use of equipment as much as possible. Uh, so dumbbells is the only thing that I – or adjustable dumbbells is the only thing that I recommend my patients get a set of. And they range in price from about 50 to 100 bucks. Um, so pushing, pulling, squatting. So just regular dumbbell squats. Um, I think split squats are really important because they do facilitate, uh, an improvement in balance. So that's a really good exercise. Um, deadlifts, okay. Uh, people have a lot of aversion to deadlifts. I don't know why. I think it's one of the best exercises for the glutes, you know, particularly the glutes and the low back, uh, and the hammies to a degree. Um, so that's typically prescribed if, if there's no contraindications for that. Um, what else? Uh, shoulder press, side shoulder raises, um, you know, lunges, if, if, if we can progress the split squat to a lunge, but just basically basic compound movements. And I think, you know, training with free weights is, as you mentioned in one of your articles is, um, is a superior way to recruit muscle mass, um, as compared to machines. So, um, I'm in favor of less equipment, you know, that's the way that I train and that's the way that I think, um, is most beneficial to patients to train. It's more functional. Um, and it builds uh, better quality muscle mass uh, and better function over time. So, yeah, um, what it would look like two days a week, basically, non-consecutive, so like a Monday-Thursday split full-body routine. Uh, and that's just to get them going, you know. And once they get, once they achieve a good level of um, uh, benefit with that, uh, obviously progress the program from there. That's brilliant. And uh, I, I think you kind of rattled off a load of exercises for people who are listening to this and, and may not understand what some of those look like. Uh, Bobby has a list of, of uh, a lot of videos on his website actually demonstrating the proper form for a lot of these exercises. So um, we'll give you the link and we'll kind of talk about that towards the end of the show. But that's certainly somewhere you can go, you know, and obviously you Google any of these exercises and, and there's a whole host of, of videos online looking at that. Um, but And Bobby, I think you, you hit a really good point in that a lot of people when they think of resistance training they think of oh well you know when i'm starting i've got to go into the gym and i've got to count one set and i've got to count one through ten reps and then i've got to take a rest and i've got to you know and it it kind of gets into this uh you know mundane routine that that people who aren't used to that just don't really seem to sit well with them so this idea that you can 
have this home-based program that you can mix up, um, you know, day-to-day or week-to-week and still get a lot of benefit from, I think is a really, uh, really valuable tool to have in your back pocket. Yeah, I, I think so. And, you know, I run training sessions for, um, for the local community here out of my garage. And, um, you know, I train various fitness levels from the, from the fittest, you know, lifeguards and surfers you can imagine to, um, to women who are well beyond the age of 50. Um, and, uh, they all seem to like that, you know, less equipment form of training. So we use, you know, rings, sandbags, medicine balls, um, to a degree we use dumbbells and, um, barbells. Um, but, uh, yeah, that functional style of lifting, a lot of people tend to really love it. And it, it, I think it builds a good foundation of strength, focusing on um, uh, developing strength from uh, from the core muscles outward, uh, retaining proper function throughout all those movements. And, um, you know, the movements can always become more challenging. Um, loads can be increased, et cetera, as you go. So it, it can always stay fresh. I was also going to talk to you a little bit about this idea of, of resistance training fitting into the overall lifestyle because, you know, speaking to you it's something that that it seems like you're really passionate about um so you have someone doing resistance training two times a week you know i play tennis or i you know swim on weekends do you encourage just that incorporation of of lifestyle behaviors or you know would you be would you be uh you know more structured and say you have got to get your 45 minutes of aerobic activity on top of this and how does that look like in in your philosophy yeah, so everybody that comes and sees me, um, I give recommendations for training. So training includes the resistance training. I give recommendations for higher levels of aerobic conditioning, typically. Um, I also give a daily calisthenics routine to everyone who comes and sees me. And this could be as simple as just doing like 50 sit-to-stands a day, um, you know, throughout the day. Or um, just arm circles or shoulder shrugs, just to get people moving because um, – you know, a lot of the clients that I see, they've got five, six, seven, maybe more chronic conditions. Um, so I've got to start, just meet them where they're at and just give them that little bit. So the training actually compromises three things, calisthenics, aerobic conditioning, and resistance training. And the aerobic conditioning is typically pres- prescribed every day. So it's usually like, you know, 12,000 steps or something as a target, 10,000, might be 5,000. Um, Calisthenics is prescribed every day, and like I said, resistance training two to three times a week, no more than that. Um, above that, so I actually structure this like a pyramid, and the training is at the bottom of the pyramid. The next level up is the daily activities. So I write a list for people, you know, folding laundry, that counts. Hanging laundry up to dry, that counts. Washing dishes, going shopping, walking the dog, taking care of the kids, playing with the kids, uh, engaging with the grandchildren, you know, uh, going to the park, all that stuff matters okay so that's the next level up of the pyramid so that's the daily activities and the way i sell the training is basically training is one aspect of our physical activity Uh, it feeds into daily activities it makes those activities much easier so that we have better quality of life okay so that's the second level of the pyramid the top of the pyramid um the top level of the pyramid is leisure time activity so I ask the person who comes and sees me, the client, um, what are you passionate about? What, what do you enjoy doing? And in many instances, they might not have something that they like or like enjoy doing. They don't, just don't know. Um, I, direct, I try to direct people to a natural environment as much as possible. I think nature is a healer. Uh, to be in a natural environment, to be seeing the greens, to be seeing the blues, to be seeing the color uh, and smelling the flowers and, and the, the leaves – 
that's all very therapeutic. So I try to get people into a natural environment as part of their leisure time. Now, leisure time, the more leisure time, the better. But at the very least, on weekends, if you can escape kind of the city uh, and get out into those parks and, and um, forests, then um, please do so. You know, So I, I try to sell it as that pyramid of physical activity with training on the bottom, daily activities in the middle, You know, those activities that we think are mundane. Um, those, we shouldn't see them as mundane because I think they're necessary to keep us human, essentially, you know, the vacuuming, the sweeping the floors, all that stuff matters. Keeping pe- people off the couch and, and away from the television and the computer as much as possible. So, uh, and then the peak, I said, the leisure time. And once you get the leisure time, I think you really can, can trigger that behavior change in people. You know, sometimes we're fighting people, I shouldn't say fighting, but, uh, you're coming, um, to help this person who has been inactive for about 30 years or more. Um, so how do you trigger behavior change in that person? And it's a very difficult thing to do. So if you can trigger something that they find really pleasurable and they love to do, um, I think you can have much more success as a practitioner. I think it's really about that. And I think the natural environment is a key to that. That's brilliant. And I just want to touch on two couple of, you know, take home points from that is, is the first one, Based on your activity level and your, you know, your lifestyle and where you're at, some of these activities of daily living will either be really mundane and, and a part of your life or they'll be novel and just doing those activities alone, you know, parking further away from the mall or taking the stairs instead of the elevator will contribute a lot to your activity in the initial parts of your exercise program so you know as you kind of said bobby they they count much more than we appreciate that they do you know whether you're fit or unfit or active or inactive um it all counts and the second one i think you made a really good point is is this idea that when we send out these recommendations or when when folks see these flyers and clinics and say you know here's what you should do for activity they see a table that says here's what you should do for weight training and here's what you do for aerobic training if that and so it's very vague it's very generic and people don't really have a starting point and so if you love to play tennis two or three times a week or if you love to play football or soccer two or three times a week or you play in a team that counts that counts as you know your aerobic activity and uh, if you don't want to give up the things you love for you know going on elliptical for 45 minutes absolutely not ultimately the things you love and the things you can be consistent at are going to be the things that are going to benefit you the most in the long run yeah absolutely yeah i couldn't couldn't agree more and that's why i rank uh resistance training as as more important than what we would call cardio training you know the cardio you're going to get anyway you know the stronger your muscle mass is the more you're going to move essentially and um you know engaging in those sport activities it's it's much more beneficial um and much more rewarding if you're nice and strong um so yeah the, the the training aspect i really really emphasize the resistance training uh whereas the cardio can be built up in you know sport leisure time going for a walk going for a hike um those kinds of things so yeah absolutely i fully agree okay so you know kind of sidebar if anyone then is in sydney best hike you've been on in and around the area oh man this there's a lot of good ones uh i would uh, highly recommend the royal national park uh, I believe it's the second oldest park in the world. It's a, an hour train ride south of Sydney, south of Central Station. So get into the Royal National Park. It's a huge area, um, lots of undulating hills, and some, some of the most beautiful beaches you'll ever see uh, are down there. So that's the place. 
you're you're making uh, you're making me want to consider some sort of international collaboration, Bobby, and, and uh, find a way to get me over there. And and you know, of course, you know, do research and all that stuff, but mainly check out the the surf and the park. Uh, you're always welcome. Yeah, this is <laughs> lovely, lovely places to see, and it would it would be an honor to work with you. So I hope we can do it. Yeah. So let's let's kind of move on to this. You know, speaking of Australia, I think reading. You know, Bobby sent me this paper where he he uh, just was trying to promote the awareness of of an exercise physiologist being, you know, within the allied health system in in Australia, and I think it's just a fascinating concept that you know both maybe Australians aren't aware of fully and the ins and outs of it. But two, I think a lot of nations, you know, outside of Oz can certainly benefit from, from listening to this. So, uh, Bobby, can you kind of touch on, on this whole concept of, of the exercise physiologist within the system? Yeah, certainly. Um, so since 2006, exercise physiologists have been involved in the healthcare system in Australia. And what that means is that we actually work under the Medicare Act um, along with other health, allied healthcare professionals, so physiotherapists, occupational therapists, dietitians, etc., um, psychologists. Um, as the guidelines currently sit, a patient with a chronic disease can be referred to us uh, for service, okay? And the patient is entitled to a rebate for seeing us, okay? So the, uh, the rebates, as they currently stand, are only about $50. Per visit um, under the Medicare Act. For that particular patient, that particular patient can only get a maximum of five visits to any allied healthcare professional or across allied healthcare professionals per year. So, like I said, I don't have a lot of contact with the patients that I see. Uh, a lot of them just can't afford exercise training or exercise sessions. Um, I don't offer, you know, group sessions that are highly accessible to patients. Um, so some of the patients that I see, I'll only see for five, five visits a year at the most. Um, but, uh, in saying that, you know, as a healthcare profession, what has happened over the last, oh, 2006, so 11 years now is that we've gained credibility amongst, uh, the medical professionals. Okay. So this has been a tremendous outcome. Um, in the last several years, I don't think since 2006, I believe since 2009, uh, there's been rebates offered under the Medicare Act for people with type 2 diabetes, for specifically for a group-based activity. So that's another addition. Um, also, some private healthcare funds. In fact, most private healthcare funds offer rebates to see exercise physiologists. So. Um, that's another win for, for our profession as well. So we're gaining momentum. I think uh, the credibility has, has been increasing year after year after year. And that's reflected by an, an increased number of referrals under the Medicare Act uh, from GPs to exercise physiologists and a growing number of practitioners as well. So um, it, it's a good time. We're rising. Uh, we're getting more credibility. And I think things are going to change as far as chronic disease management goes. It seems to be just this kind of positive reinforcing cycle where the more the more people get involved, the more patients you have, the more you know professionals are willing to get into this uh, this area and really kind of work with with uh, you know with the various billing codes and all that type of stuff. Is it is it difficult for you as a as, as a professional to work with these various uh, rebates, or is it is a fairly straightforward system? No, it's fairly straightforward. I mean, the patient comes in, they, they pay for the service, um, and uh, 
then they apply for a rebate and they get their rebate. Now, <clears throat> one of the interesting things is that under the Medicare Act, I'm only required to provide a 20-minute consult. Um, but you tell me how much you get done in exercise <laughs> with exercise in 20 minutes. So my consults, my initial consults typically go for um, you know an hour, sometimes an hour and a half. And that's just talking. That's basically I want to get to know this person. Um, you know, second consult when we're implementing and um, teaching the exercises, they'll take an hour at least. So, um, you know, we don't get much back for the services that we provide. So, unfortunately, the patient in most instances is out of pocket. Um, some EPs or exercise physiologists, they do provide um, bulk billing. So, they'll just charge the $50 and, and that'll be that. But um, I think to really make a change in people, you've got to spend time with them. And certainly that takes a lot longer to long, not longer than 20 minutes to get some uh, behavior change across yeah and I, you hit the nail on the head there in terms of the the initial consult i don't think people appreciate the importance of of that initial content consult and and having you know one a professional who's willing to sit down and, and have that consult with you and be as open as honest as possible about what the process is going to look like the challenges you're going to face and and some of the barriers you may have to overcome and, and kind of start that problem solving process but also from the the patient or client perspective also being open and honest in in your struggles and, and where you you feel like you need help and how you work and how you know being mindful of of how you can be directed with a profession how you work with people you know are you someone that really likes just this you know authoritative figure and you know a kind of a binary yes or no uh, code whereas you know some people may need more of a helping hand along the way and may need more troubleshooting and and back and forth and being able to appreciate where you're at and knowing um you know knowing how you work with people is so such a big uh factor in that initial concept that will will help shape the course of your program moving forward yeah absolutely and you've mentioned that in <clears throat> several of your publications is to personalize it and you really need as a practitioner you need the right personality to do the job to engage with people to see where they've come from because <clears throat> we've got the hardest job in healthcare we really do i mean you're, you're trying to untangle sometimes 50 60 years of sedentary behavior poor lifestyle habits like smoking um uh, poor diet that kind of thing that's what you're up against so to undo that in a 20-minute consult i mean come on you know so we've we've got the hardest job in the healthcare system that's what i tell all of my students um but we've also uh, we're in a position where we can provide the best outcomes, some of the best outcomes that these patients will get. We often think of, well, we're training cancer patients, survivors, and they're, they're not just cancer patients, survivors. Some of these folks have, you know, as you kind of mentioned at the top of the interview, a lot of comorbidities, you know, training a 32-year-old cancer, you know, breast cancer survivor um, who was stage one and caught it early and is, is back running, you know, within a few weeks or months of treatment is much different than a 62 year old breast cancer survivor who also has diabetes and you know maybe has gout and maybe has you know peripheral neuropathy and, and lymphedema and all these other things going on that it's not just the cancer that you're treating you're 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 looking at this whole picture and uh, it was interesting reading this article when you look at the difference in in physiologists or exercise physiologists versus a physio or a pt and I think that's where we have, one, you know, a much larger task, and two, we have the potential for more impact in that. 
you go for, uh, you know, say you have a, an issue with lymphedema and you get a billing code to go to PT to improve the range of motion and function of your arm. That's great. Your arm has been, you know, restored to as close to normal function as possible. But what do you do if you're still 40, 50 pounds overweight and you're still inactive and all these other things that can lead to recurrence and, you know, compound and all these com- comorbidities. So as you said, Bobby, you think it's, it's a... It takes the right personality, and I think it takes really passionate and driven individuals to to move this field forward. Yeah, I, I think so, and and it's it's becoming the norm. I mean, to see a range of of um, comorbidities in any one given patient, you know. So typically, the person that I'll see is that uh, latter person that you describe. You know, the person in their sixties, they've got over, uh, they're overweight, they're insulin resistant. Um, so you're not just treating the primary condition. You know, there's a whole range of things that you need to untangle. Um, because so many of these, you know, what we call diseases, they overlap significantly, uh, in terms of the etiology, in terms of their, uh, uh, pathophysiology. Um, so yeah, it's very interesting because I think the research is, is starting to move in that direction as well, which is, uh, interesting and maybe something we can get into, you know, as we touched on safety and efficacy, you know, it feels like at least within breast cancer that that has been established, safety and efficacy. I see the two big gaps now. There's two major ones. One is translation. So we've got this huge evidence base. Um, and we need to somehow get away, get, get, a, um, get a process where we can actually integrate exercise better into the cancer care settings. Um, so I've been having these conversations with oncologists, with other exercise physiologists, with physiotherapists as to how we can best do this. Um, so there's a number of initiatives that I'm involved with um, that are currently in progress, um, but there's nothing firmly established at this stage yet. And a couple of things that you know, we've, there's hiccups along the way and all kinds of hurdles that you need to jump through. So, but that is one of the major gaps, and I think that integration is really not happening anywhere. Um, aside from maybe, I believe there's a there's a lab in WA uh, led by Rob Newton and um, Daniel Galveo. Uh, where that integration is happening. Um, but it's certainly not the norm. And um, I don't know, can you speak on the States? Is that happening anywhere in the States? Yeah, as you said, it's the exact same. Unless, you know, you look at kind of Claudio Battaglini down in North Carolina, um, obviously Katie Schmitz, wherever she goes, uh, you know, the research follows. But it takes so much work to foster these relationships and develop a trusting relationship with oncologists because quite frankly you know they're too busy to reach out to to exercise physiologists in the area and they you know how do how do you know who's a qualified established uh so you know quote-unquote expert in this area that's that's able to to work with their population so as you said you know the likes of rob newton has spent 10 15 years trying to establish and foster that relationship and likewise you know even also the ohio state you know, my mentor, Dr. Fo, has been 10 years in the making fostering these relationships with various oncologists. So it, yeah. it really highlights how much work has to be done to, to get these folks on board. And, and it is changing and it's changing slowly. But as you mentioned, Bobby, it's it's certainly not the norm. And, and that's that's the biggest thing that I think needs to change. And you mentioned it earlier. A lot of that is going to be patient driven. You know, the the articles will come and the studies will come and you know, every so often you'll hear a different type of exercise is good for a different type of cancer. But until patients and survivors are knocking on their physician's doors and saying, who can I go to? How do I get help? Please refer me to someone. 
yeah. it's such a larger body of of people that if it, if it can be driven from that direction you know both us on the back end and them on the front end i think that's what's going to facilitate the growth of of this you know collaboration yeah i couldn't agree more i think all change all change in general comes from the ground up so it has to come from the grassroots and patient demand is what's going to push this um into practice uh, essentially um you know you talk about barriers you know the the only real barriers are, are access um space and personnel so if we can if we can check those boxes you know you've got integration happening fairly quickly it's just that um you know, people are fighting to get X amount of dollars to hire an exercise physiologist. You know, it's just, it doesn't make any sense. They, sh- they should be part of the clinical practice. They have physiotherapists already. You know, we're, we're allied healthcare professionals. We're recognized as allied healthcare professionals. There is an evidence base to support what we do. Um, so why not? You know, where is the money? Um, <clears throat> that, that should be there. So, yeah, there are challenges, but I think, um, you know, we're on the cusp of uh, hopefully pushing this forward and and the patient demand as you mentioned is really the key that might push it uh, over the edge yeah certainly and it's it's interesting you kind of mentioned the money there we have we we're fortunate to work with a couple of really strong oncologists that are open-minded and and share a lot of our frustrations in in the whole idea of uh you know dr steve clinton is a prostate oncologist here and and he his, he always goes back to this idea that people are willing to spend or you know, policymakers are willing to spend three hundred thousand dollars on a round of androgen deprivation therapy or chemotherapy, whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. But that three hundred thousand dollars alone could fund and run an exercise physiology center for a year or two, you know. And so you're looking at the six months of treatment versus two years that could you know support however many patients, you know. And it's it's just interesting to see, you know, one that they share our frustrations, but two that. That that's getting lost in translation somewhere, somewhere between us as physiologists and you know the policymakers way up above. I think that that whatever that line of of communication is, that's going to need to change if we're going to make any any movement. Yeah, I mean, as I tell my students, um, the only thing missing from healthcare is health, because uh, you know it's not about health; it's about disease. It's about disease management, and and that's basically what healthcare is. It's it's disease care. Um, so until perceptions and beliefs, uh, start to change, um, and patients demand it, you know, we're, we're still knocking on the door. We're, we're still on the outside. Can you give, you know, some, some advice to professionals who are looking to get into this area or some considerations for working with breast cancer survivors and then kind of touch on, uh, you know, breast cancer survivors who are looking to start a program themselves, any advice you'd have for them? Um, look, I, I think, uh, the number one thing is, is not to look at people like victims, you know? So when you look at somebody like a victim, it's like, Oh, I'm going to treat this patient with extra care and not poke them and prod them. You know, I've, women are capable of lifting tremendous amounts of weight after breast cancer. Um, so don't hold back, you know, the sky's the limit really. I mean, um, the first study that I did, I, I started collecting data for it back in, um, I think 2000. Uh, and it was published in the Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research. And I had women lifting like 100 kilos, you know, like for a bench press kind of thing. <laughs> like it was, 
not not 100 kilos, 100 pounds, I should say, 100 pounds, which is about 50 kilos, but doing like a full set, you know, like 10 reps uh, of bench press with free weights. So, you know, the, the sky's the limit and, and let's get over this uh, kind of victim mentality because I think that holds us back. Um, keep pushing. You know, obviously, I'm not concerned with like if a person falls off the wagon for a week or two weeks you know, that's life. You know, we go through periods where uh, we get ill or we go through periods where we're on holidays, where we don't train. But I'm concerned with the long term trajectory. I want people to stay on that horse for the rest of their life. Um, so really, don't worry if you got undulating fatigue levels or if you got like some shoulder issues that are coming on just because of the exercise. Adapt, change the program if you need to, but keep going, keep going, keep going. Um, and, um, you know, this is something that you continue with, like I said, for, for the rest of your years. Um, so that's a message for both practitioners and, um, uh, patients, I guess, is to, is to, is to get into it straight away. Don't overthink it. Just get into it. You know? <laughs> yeah. I love that last piece of advice of just understanding that, you know, life happens and we all f- face these periods of, of inactivity, you know, whatever the case may be. And just to understand the bigger picture of, of staying active across weeks, months and years, it's much more important than missing a few days here and there. So that's I think that's a great, great point. And I think that's a strong one to finish on, Bobby. So, um, you know, you stick around for a little bit and we'll kind of chat after we finish up. But, you know, I really want to thank you for taking taking the time out of your day for chatting with us. Um, where can people find you or, or how can they kind of touch base with you if they're, they're looking to connect or reach out to you? Yeah. So through my website is probably the easiest and that's linked up to all the social media and whatnot. Um, so it's just drbobbychima.com, uh, D-R, Bobby, uh, with a Y, Chima, C-H-E-M-A.com. Brilliant. Brilliant. So I'll, I'll post that in the link as well. And um, as I mentioned, Bobby, listen, thanks a lot for for chatting to us. I got a lot out of it, so I hope our, our listeners did too. So I uh, really appreciate your time tonight. Yeah, it's been wonderful. Thanks so much, Karen. All Enjoy right, mate. It.